0: Hi everyone, this is Marcia, and I'm the director and founder of the Brooklyn Caribbean Literary Festival. I'm thrilled and elated to announce the birth and launch of our brand new podcast, Cocoa Pod. Consider the aromatic Cocoa Pod, and how, after carefully ripening under the Caribbean sun, it generously offers up its rich fruit in due season. Cocoa Pod by BCLF aims to provide a similar delight. Each episode is a seed, a nugget of an original Caribbean story told in the voice of its writer. Each story, an infinite gift by the offshoot of an ancient griot tradition. As a whole, Caribbean stories are like a mighty tree whose branches extend offering shade and comfort wherever her children settle. From my team, and the legion of Caribbean writers behind us, we bring to you the warmest of welcomes. Hi there, my name is Miriam Chancy,
1: and I'm the author of What Storm, What Thunder, a novel about the 2010 Haiti earthquake, told in 10 Voices, only one of whom repeats and what you experience through these 10 voices is a sense of what the earthquake might have been like to live through or to witness from afar through characters of different ages different genders different socioeconomic backgrounds who all try to make sense of the lives they had before the earthquake what they went through during the earthquake and if they survived what life was like for them after the earthquake. And the idea of having these 10 voices tell you that story is to give you a sense of not only the wide range of experience that took place during the earthquake, but also the wide range of responses to the earthquake in its aftermath, which were not all uniform. And it was a way for me to make the experience of the earthquake more intimate to the reader, when, as we know, very often when we see cataclysms happen in different parts of the world, the news reports tell us about masses of people who are often undistinguishable one from the other. And this was a way to make the experience vital to the reader as if they were reading about people they themselves knew, or perhaps that as you read the novel will make you think about what could happen in your own city or town and what you would do to safeguard your loved ones, and even the memory of the places where you grew up or know very personally. So what I'd like to do in the reading today is to give you a sense of the novel through maybe um, five of the 10 voices, just by reading very brief excerpts from them. And I'm going to start with Malou, and Malou is the only voice in the novel that repeats She begins and ends the novel. She's a 75-year-old market woman. And um, she is able to reflect on the earthquake in a way that very few people can because she really knows everyone in the society from the most privileged to the least. And this is one of the reasons she opens and ends the novel. So this is her memory of her experience of the earthquake. I watched. That's what old market women do. We watch. But this time, the lot of us market women sprang to action, even as our bones creaked for lack of cartilage and oil. Like the others on the street, we used anything in hand we could find. Useless things like spoons and forks, the metal ends of umbrellas, as if our puny things, our fingernails, could move all that. Only the lucky were saved. Being lucky meant simply that you were closer to the surface or that fewer things blocked the way to being found. We heard people on their cell phones all up and down the street begging frantically for help, giving directions to where they thought they were beneath the rubble within the rooms of their houses. Phones rang and we heard people answer them then fewer and fewer voices the tinny persistent ringing of cell phone tones different songs rising like wind from underground with no answer we heard our own voices screaming at each other asking for help not knowing what to do faces covered with dust and sweat and other things later to be determined what to do There was nothing to do but to scream, try anything, flail our hands, scratch at the earth like my chickens when they get confused because their fresh laid eggs disappear one by one and still they lay more. Try anything and still it's too little. After the earth rose and split open, yes, I saw angels walking, but there had also been dust, white dust, everywhere, caking all objects and every moving thing. The dust came from the concrete crumbling to pieces as buildings flattened, but there were also other things mixed in blood and bones. Had I mistaken The Walking Dead for angels, survivors stumbling through the debris with the same white flakes covering their bodies from head to toe that covered mine? Eventually we, the market women, remembered our oil lamps and lit them one by one, those of us who could. Only part of the market had been crushed, the part against a wall. Still, it was impossible to tell what belonged to whom, and at that point, no one cared. We worked at freeing those we could set prayers for the others, promising deliverance to those we could not get to, to give them some solace, some hope in their final moments, because salvation would soon be theirs. Then back down the street, darting back and forth, using the goods from the market to feed those working at rescue, doing what we could, as we always did, our large bodies moving through the rubble as if we were land whales, made for swimming through dust-laden air, made for parting human waves. We treated everyone alike, they had become all the same, were always the same. Something we had always known from our low to the ground perches, observing life like budgies, our heads wrapped in colorful scars to keep the heat of the sun from roasting our brains, sweat slipping down our necks, draping the half moon of our chest exposed above the breasts. We fanned ourselves, but it didn't help. Shala, Heat came with the territory but not this, not this, a different kind of heat. Sitting here under the hot sun all day, we ripen. The saints, the crooks, the foreigners, the white saviors, the bleeding hearts, they all need sustenance, and we give it to them. Close my eyes, look away, it's all the same. The need to shut everything down, slow my breathing, take in what's there to take in, let all the rest go. If only I could get rid of the images of the smell still clogging my nostrils. Ha! You would think that after so many years working in the market, nothing would offend this nose. Look what surrounds us every day. The mounds of smoldering garbage, the spoiling fruits with skins speckled with loitering flies, the leavings of dogs, the runoff of dirty water weaving its way through the alleyways, that dense, Acrid stink of urine. A marketplace is a world of colliding senses, not all of it pretty or fruitful, much of it decay, especially at the end of a day when the best of what's available is gone and all that remain are cast offs, the leftovers. This is the part of a day when those of us who work the market blend into the dust and the loam, become one with the elements the odors of sweat and dung, the sweet sap of fleshy fruits ground underfoot, the nothing that we are, the all. We sweep up what's left of a day knowing that striving toward perfection is beyond our reach. A little corner of peace, that's all we want. I found mine after the trip to the waterfalls, but it would take some time to get there, Peace is what others want from me, from us, the market women they imagine sit immobile, rooted to the earth, but without extensions, no lives and families of our own, waiting patiently for them to come with their grimy dollars, their smiles full of need, to unload money and stories of desire, a desire to be free of worry, to be freed. A little corner of peace is all they want, and i give it to them like a sponge i absorb and grow fat and round the weight of their words like leaves imprinted into my flesh hanging heavy from my frail bones rooting myself to the ground because it is the only thing that i can be sure of then now who's to say that the red of the earth of this island isn't drawn from the blood of women like me Sitting in the markets, pooling. A little corner of peace is all that is wanted. Now I know how to give it to them. I do so freely. I listen. Little did I know that my work was only beginning. So that's the end of Malou's first section in the novel. And it takes place in 2014. The rest of the novel will take you back to 2010 and then to 2012, ending with Malou. When you come across these characters, you'll find that many of them are actually related. If they don't know each other through the marketplace or through a professional connection, there are three families that are portrayed in the novel. And I'm going to read some outtakes from from two two other families. So Malou is part of one family group, uh, which also includes her son, Richard, who is a multimillionaire but has nothing to do with his mother anymore, and his daughter, his natural daughter, to whom he sends money and sends to school but doesn't really know. Her name is Anne. She's grown up to be an architect. And then um, there is also a family of uh, two accountants, uh, Sarah, and Olivier, who had three children. And I'm going to read next very short excerpt from Sarah, who has lost her children suddenly in the earthquake, at least two of them, two of the three. When the tugging started on her right elbow, as she slept folded in on herself as she used to sleep, That image of all of them growing old together had begun to fade. She had begun to forget what each of them looked like, not because dues had happened so long ago. Was it now only a few months ago, six months ago? It seemed so much longer. But because the shock of their sudden disappearance had broken something in her mind, the part that was able to take things in and let them go, that wanted for little more than she had. The violence of this loss was like nothing she had ever experienced before. Not like her parents' departures or her grandmother waving goodbye to her as she climbed into the back of her aunt and uncle's four-wheel drive, where she sat between two of the cousins, their sweaty thighs touching stickily together in the heat, forming an unexpected bond in place of the tearing away from all that she had held dear and familiar. The morning of the event, she remembered. They were there, eating breakfast, fighting over something that would soon be forgotten. They went off to school, hair combed or plaited, looking smart in their school clothes. They came home from school, washed up, changed into play clothes, did their homework, then asked for permission to go play with their friends as they waited for Olivier to return home and sit down to dinner. She'd said yes, as she almost always did. Why had she said yes? Why hadn't she been stricter as Olivier had started to insist that she be? Out they went, little arms flailing in that smooth devil-may-care way that only children have, miniature dancers with hidden internal choreographers named happiness and simplicity, love. That's what they were. Love and movement, her love, Olivier's, all the world's love wrapped up in their little fists, pumping through the air, feet following, drumming the earth for joy. Jonas, their oldest, she'd sent to get an egg from Malou, the old woman in the market who doted on her son as if he were her own, sent him to and from the market to run errands for other clients when she could spare him. He loved the attention, feeling grown, but the boy had turned 11, For he had been a brooding 10, going on 11, a ruminator like his father. He was often distracted as he made his way to and from the market, counting his steps in every direction that he went. Televisions and radios caught his attention, other children from school or the market women themselves with their telegiol and tall tales. He listened to it all and sometimes reported back. He loved to tell her about the soap opera named Frijolito, or Little Bean, which everyone liked to watch at a house down the road from them, the house of a woman whose name she didn't know, but who had a sullen-looking nephew, who had helped her to install a used television in her living room, that she turned toward a window so that neighbors could watch too. She didn't watch telenovelas, didn't have any use for them. And what did romance have to do with little beans anyway? That day, she told him to come right back with the egg. She needed it to strengthen a thin soup, was already imagining the filaments of egg beaten and swirled into the broth, thickening it to a lustrous yellow. Why had he not done as she'd asked that day, come right back, With the egg? Why had he dallied and gone to take a peek at the soap opera with the neighborhood children? Why had he entered the house rather than stood outside like the others? Because he was too short, this she knew, so always minced his way through alcoves and door jams, but still she asked herself the questions over and over again, as if the answers might come back differently, though they never did. Why had he always, like her husband, his father, been so distracted by everything around him? Why couldn't he stay on a straight path? She fought this now, lying on the cot, knowing that if Olivier, her husband, had stayed on a straight path, one that would have brought him greater wealth, maybe better class standing, they might have never met, never made the children who all were gone. Maybe this was why she asked the questions, why? If they had never met, which would have been better? The tug insistent in the middle of the night, she had turned to the darkness next to her, inches above the ground, and said to it, please, please leave. Then turned her head back against the thin mattress she had been given in the camp by some act of grace because she'd come there with nothing more than the stitch of clothes on her back, a headdress, some flat-heeled shoes, a ribbon from one of their daughter's heads. Had she come alone? Her children came to define her. Not even Olivier had been able to mark her in that way. They taught her who she was and who she wanted to be. Something more than a mother Something of a divine, an intermediary between heaven and earth, the vessel that brought them from over there to here, who'd made flesh out of spirit. They made her believe in holy things for a time, until they all disappeared in a matter of seconds, and the miracles that they were became dust, leaving her above ground only to preach about their passage, a passage she no longer believed in and for which she refused to testify. Another of the families, of the three families I mentioned, is made up of a sibling group. We have Sonia, who is a sex worker in a large hotel. She works there with her best friend, Jodonie, who is a fixer. And she identifies as M, both of them do, uh, which is the term used in Haiti for individuals who identify as what in North America people would think of as queer or LGBTQ. Sonia is the older sister, along with Didier. In that family group, Didier is a musician, a failed musician who is living in Boston at the time of the earthquake and who um, is driving cabs Uh, other people's cabs when he can to make ends meet. They have two younger siblings, uh, Tafia, who has her own section in the novel, as do Sonia and Didier. Tafia is 15 years old. And they also have a younger brother, uh, younger to Sonia and Didier, whose name is Paul, who does not have his own section, but who appears in, in the other sibling section. And I'm going to read briefly from Sonia's section, because Sonia and Dudoné have um, a kind of sixth sense about what is about to happen, and the opening of her section gives you a feeling for that otherworldliness, uh, which is part and proper, I think, of Haiti in the sense that there is a, a, a great belief in the spiritual, the metaphysical, and Sonia and Diodonné give voice to that. Sonia, Port-au-Prince, Hôtel de la Montagne Noire, January 12th, 2010. Judonet knew that something was wrong shortly after waking that morning. Jonas, the son of Olivier, the man who kept our books, was a little boy of 11 years of age who could run like the wind and dreamed of being a soccer star. He had already come and gone before making his way to school, with a basket full of avocados and orange flesh mangoes retrieved from Malou's stand in the market that we would give to the hotel management for indulging our presence. Malou always gave us the best she could find, and the hotel manager radiated pride when she set out the fruit in the hotel lobby to show the foreigners the bounty of our land. We felt less shame, too. Jonas had fulfilled his errand quickly, as if a spirit were clinging to his heels, giving him unseen force to move through the congested streets, hop on and off the tap-taps, run up the hill to the hotel where we had a room to ourselves, away from the clients, swirling dust like a dervish as he ran back down the hill early, early in the morning, before the sun had fully risen in the sky, and Joudonnet had turned to face me from his bed and said, something is going to happen to that boy, to all of us. We're all going to have to run soon. He seemed half asleep, entranced on the edges of a dream or a nightmare, so I ignored him as his eyes closed and his mouth stayed open after he made the pronouncement as he drifted back to sleep. He had known that something was wrong, was going to go wrong, He told me later that he could sniff it in the air, a too-clean smell that comes in the minutes before a hurricane or a thunderstorm when the skies are clear and crackling with electric energy before the winds pick up and snap fronds clean from swaying palms whose rhizomes grasp the earth like tentacular fists as if fearing to be uprooted by the squalls, a too clean smell where there should have been only the usual stench and smoke from the burning of garbage heaps gathered at the edges of the street and set to flame there before children like Jonas made their way to school. Not that such order could be counted on, but people tried. He was confirmed in his suspicion that things were off when he saw the short pear-shaped walnut-skinned man in the dark suit and hat with a white shirt straining across the reach of his bulging, pregnant-like belly sitting at the bar, a few feet away from the kidney-shaped pool. It wasn't the man he told me was his cousin, Richard, who was in town only for a few days and who he had said wasn't anyone we needed to worry about. Richard thought only about himself, according to Judoni. He was an important man overseas and didn't have time to think about the trouble he could cause others, though, like most men, he caused trouble along his way anyway. No, the man in question was not Richard, nor was it Leopold, another distant relation whom I knew only from the way he raked his eyes over my body every time he saw me, attempting with his gaze to penetrate through skin and bone as if my soul would release itself to him and only him. No, not Leopold. The man eyeing me was much older but voracious in his attention. He stared at me as if I was the round, reddish-green apple he was avariciously biting through that morning. He held the apple akimbo in one hand preciously between bites while the other hand rested ceremoniously on the head of a cane shaped to resemble a duck or a swan with two eyes made of red stones, one on either side of the head. The animal head of the cane peered through the gaps between the man's plump fingers. The sight of it was chilling as if it might turn into a snake. At any moment and strike us dead. I saw Judone shiver from across the bar when later the man lit up a thin cigar. He gave me a look across the counter, and I could see in his eyes that we were thinking the same thing Gede, Segide Kila, the god of death. We'd read each other's thoughts. Judone kept watch on the man as if to protect me from imminent danger. But the man never moved from his seat, never sent over rum or wine, not even water. So this is how Sonia's section opens, giving you a sense of a feeling of ominousness in the air with this figure of this man who might for them symbolize Gide, uh, the god of death. And this Uh, mention of water is important because throughout the novel, there is a running theme of water in the sense of who has access to potable water, drinking water, uh, whether the water is clean or unclean. And also uh, in the sense of what people replace it with when they don't have the potable water. And of course this has everything to do with who has access to aid and who does not have access to it, and who will be better able to survive if they do survive. And so with that said, I'm going to turn to Olivier. Uh, This is Sarah's husband, who has, after a few days, disappeared from the IDP camp where Sarah has been with their son, Jonas. And he is an accountant. He's also, I would say, lower middle class, He's had a fairly easy life uh, and has not encountered anything like this before. And he has gone on to another camp, which is meant was meant at the time to decentralize uh, the capital, uh, because of a death toll of 250,000 to 300,000 people and the displacement of 1.5 million people who were left without shelter. Uh, you know, those numbers were so high. Because the city was built originally for 250,000 and had millions at the time of the 2010 earthquake, as it still does today. And so he leaves uh, and he is ruminating on the numbers, the millions that are already pouring in at this point, only a few weeks, a couple of months after the earthquake. And of course, part of his rumination is about keeping his great grief at bay. As soon as I arrive in the rocky field of Camp Cocas, I find that shelter turns out to mean a doghouse smaller than the shithole tent I had to leave my wife and son in in the place. In the market turned into a displaced person's camp below the cathedral. The shack has got a metal corrugated roof that's hot as hell and no running water. There's a water truck that comes through once a week, but that's about it. The truck rumbles through at high speed so fast that children and goats have to be snatched quickly out of the way to keep them from being run over. A donkey was killed that way fast the first day. The driver snapped its neck and the camp dwellers roasted the carcass over an improvised pit. There was fresh food for several days that time, but no one wants to end up a dead donkey. We still have to make a run for it to piss or crap in holes after the porta potties fill up and no one has the stomach to empty them, not even the bayaku. We have to both save ourselves and clean up our own shit. Can't pass that on like we might have before. There's no school. The camp dwellers will have to organize that for ourselves too. Food rations are the usual blanch Arkansas rice, we've been eating for years, and freeze-dried packets of gritty material reconstituted with boiling water that we pretend is edible. The hygiene kit is made for people who have nothing more to treat than paper cuts, some squares of cleansers, a glycerin to help with healing, some small bandages of different sizes, all in a waterproof box in case we get rained on, and we will. Nothing for people with cigar-cut amputations or crushed extremities, or who had their heads bashed in from bricks falling on them. Nothing for someone in the state that my son is in. He would have to be nearly healed to come out this way, and when I left, it didn't look like he was going to make it. From the camp, the hospital is as far as the capital. There is no way he would survive the trip. All that can be done is to fight off infection, hope he survives. In the meantime, I'm here for work, to make money. Or this is what I tell myself. In Camp We're were 5,000 souls in the arid desert. Soon, when word gets out about the factory that's being planned out this way, there will be thousands upon thousands more. But now it's just us out in the middle of nowhere, with no running water, no electricity. It's dark at night, much darker than in the city. I can see the stars up above clearly. Fat lot of good, that does me. Fuck the stars and fuck the U.S. of A. relief services. I never even got my $50 after I was shown to the door of my new lodgings, a shithouse in the long row of dog houses. They smiled when they dumped me in the camp as if I should be grateful. The only cheerful aspect of the dwellings is that their bright white Instead of a drab institutional gray of the tarps being handed out in the capital, tarps stamped a gift from the American people or alternatively an association with the Republic of Ireland. The Irish own the telecommunications in Haiti. They don't have to pick potatoes or anything else anymore. I wanted to buy a franchise a few years ago. We never did it. Would we be elsewhere had we done that? Would we be on a plane heading out to Ireland now? The dwellings are so white that it seems that perhaps the people who had them built had imagined that they were creating a colony on the moon or on Mars. We are a colony. That's for sure. A petri dish. Welcome to Camp Cocas, gateway to the intergalactic medieval future. So I'm going to end uh, this reading, these outtakes with uh, Jonas, the 11-year-old boy who just turned 11 a few days before the earthquake. He is uh, Sonia and Olivier's last surviving son. And um, he comes much later in the novel, but you will find him in every section, as you will many of the other characters, uh, and even Malou, Jonas, Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Douze, it's the number of days that passed since the first of a year and the earth trembled, only half of which I was finally old enough to blow out my own candles. Douze, divided in half, it's the number of candles Mama put on my cake, short five wicks for my real age, because that was what she could borrow from the neighbor woman whose children had all left her years before and never came home. The number of cell phones they could have bought her by now, the number of eggs that sit in an open carton on Ma Lu's stand at the market, which takes 48 steps to reach if you force through the crowd like a chicken looking for her babies, hoping not to be snatched up off the ground to be fried for someone's dinner at night. The number of eggs we wonder at with wide open eyes, but can buy only two or three of at a time if there's money in the house that week, or if not, that we can only gaze at from a distance. While Malu makes us scatter away so she can deal with real customers, the ones who come down in their cars and never even put a foot out to touch the dust, who look out onto the market stalls from their perches and squawk at their drivers to get this and that. Inspecting the whole dozen of eggs before purchasing it, while Malou yells, Don't touch my eggs, don't break my eggs, you touch, you buy, dola, back We all know they have houses in Miami and Montreal, those people. Doze The number of ears of corn the crazy man who thought he was a cob had eaten after he was cured, then choked, thinking, I know I'm not a cob, but what if the chickens don't know? Papa told me that joke. Minus two. It's the number of friends from school I can count on my hands, the number of first cousins on my mother's Sighed. The number of seconds I can hold my breath at the dinner table before Papa slaps me gently across the back of my head to get me to stop, and I burst into laughter. Mama says he worries after us like a woman, but like a man, he doesn't talk much, uses his hands instead. Times two. The number of seconds I can swim underwater before coming up for air, watching the little school of fish with yellow bellies dart between my body and the distant pointy pokes of pinkish coral reef stuck below at the bottom of the ocean. It's the number of pieces of blue mint candy I took from the dish in the hotel lobby that morning after running an errand for Malou and Sonia the niece of a neighbor whose television I watched sometimes after school and gave to the girl in my class I had my heart set on once I got to school, all sweaty and tired from the morning run. The number of times that girl's older brother got shot at when one of his deals went wrong in an alleyway, but none of the shots landed on him, and he laughed and laughed and laughed before his girlfriend left him, saying she didn't want to hear that laugh again. It's the number of blocks between the house and the school with all their hiding places and shadows, the largest number of points on a domino tile, the number of times my mother prays the rosary before she goes to sleep, round and round again, the coral beads dangling across the mapu brown of her fingers, plus two the number of stations of the cross at church, the number of times the little Jesus had to pay for our lives, the number of little thorns I imagine dug deep into the flesh of his scalp and made him bleed before he realized that no one was coming to save him. Twelve seconds is all the time it took for the length of wall, separating the living room from the bedrooms in the neighbor's house where we all gathered frozen in front of a TV, sitting or standing, watching the late afternoon soap opera to fall, while I traced a vine-like crack climbing speedily across its surface. I wasn't supposed to be there, warming the one egg that I had gone from Malu stall, running an errand after school for Mama, who was waiting for me in our kitchen, where she was making something for us to eat. The girls were there, sitting on the tile floor, playing, then disappeared into the ground. It's the number of times I cried out for Mama until I realized that she couldn't hear me for all the other children crying out for their mammas, both in the neighbor's house and out in the street, everyone crying out for their mammas as if each were the same person, reaching for my little sisters only to find air in my hand, grasping than hours of hearing them crying together only for their cries to go silent after a while, while I lay pinned beneath cement blocks, not knowing what to do, frightened. I want to thank all of you listening for taking the time to uh, take in this podcast and to read the novel if you have the opportunity to read it. There is also an audiobook, a uh, voice by La Turine, who unfortunately recently passed away. And I hope that the novel itself and, and her recording of it can also serve as a way to remember all those whose lives we may not have known, but whose lives have value and who could be us one day. And that in the future, we will have more holistic responses to disasters like this one, and that we will have more preventative measures in place so that death tolls are not so high, losses are not so many, and perhaps we will have fewer and fewer of these stories to tell. Thank you for taking the time to be with me. I hope you read What Storm What Thunder, and I thank you for your attention.
0: We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please take a moment to follow Pod and turn on your notifications so that you don't miss new stories when they drop. One last thing. Caribbean stories and Caribbean writers need our help. Show your support by sharing and downloading this podcast as far and as widely as you can. Buy their books, support independent bookshops, and request Caribbean titles from your local libraries. Remember that a rising tide lifts all ships. Give thanks. For more Caribbean storytelling goodness, follow Cocoa Pod and BCLF Always Lit on all major podcast platforms.